And when we speak, we are afraid our words will not be heard nor welcomed. But when we are silent, we are still afraid. So it is better to speak, remembering we were never meant to survive. Welcome to Better to Speak, the podcast where we use storytelling to transform silence into language and action. I'm your host, Casey Felton. Four years ago, I set out to host a book drive to collect books for and about Black people. I was not only able to partner with Reading Partners DC, the local chapter of a leading national organization that provides one-on-one literacy training to underserved students, I was also able to get the buy-in of several Black children's book authors who personally donated their works to the book drive. Now I'm getting ready for year four of the book drive, and I've been thinking recently about the significance of this initiative in particular for Better to Speak and what we aim to do. This year, I think the book drive is an important program to move forward with, specifically because of the opportunity it creates to discuss relevant issues that pertain to literacy, education, and diversity in media content. Since March 2020, we've all experienced the at times insurmountable disruptions to normal life, but the experiences of those who are the most marginalized and most vulnerable still seem to be swept under the rug in mainstream discourse. Researchers have shared that learning loss due to school shutdowns will inevitably affect school-aged children, in reading and especially so in math, by the time we reach the other side of this pandemic. An article from McKinsey and Company reads, While all students are suffering, those who came into the pandemic with the fewest academic opportunities are on track to exit with the greatest learning loss. Much damage has already been done, and even the best-case scenarios have students half a grade level behind in June. To catch up, many students will need step-up opportunities to accelerate their learning. Now is the time for school systems to prepare post-pandemic strategies that help students meet their full potential. Especially now with folks pushing to reopen schools, education advocates are working to raise awareness about how the inevitable impact of what many people in the space are calling COVID slide will affect school-aged children well after the pandemic is over. Organizations like Reading Partners are doing the work to mitigate this learning loss, with their one-on-one tutoring now being virtual. But they've also been a leading voice on this issue, as well as on the intersection of racial equity and education, spearheaded by their new CEO, Adiola Whitney, who returned to Reading Partners to take over as CEO in October of 2020. I had the pleasure of speaking with Adiola about Reading Partners' work and her perspective on how education advocates and community members can all work together to alleviate the impact of COVID slide. This interview is such a full circle way to kick off the book drive, which will officially be from March 8th to March 31st. If you'd like to donate to support in the meantime, you can do so by clicking the link in the bottom of the description of whatever platform you're listening on right now, or by going to bettertospeak.org slash bookdrive. More information will be available there and on our socials in the coming weeks on how to donate physical books, so be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at bettertospeak underscore, and on Facebook at bettertospeak, and sign up for our email newsletter, which you can do on our website. Uh, first and foremost, again, thank you so much for having us. Um, I have a lot to my personal story. Um, I'm a mom, I'm a sister, I'm a friend, I'm a daughter, I'm a wife. But um, I think more than anything, I am the daughter of um, two Nigerians, uh, both born, born in Lagos, Nigeria, who came to this country to create a better life and more opportunities for their six kids. And I'm the second to the youngest of six. And um, back in the 80s, there was an experience um, that I had uh, with my father and um, my mom at a mall uh, in Columbus, Ohio, where I grew up that forever changed my life. 
uh, it, it determined, it, it, a lot of that um, helped to influence where I went to college, uh, the fact that I double majored and one of my majors was African-American studies and all of the work that I've done professionally. And I think even who I am as a mom and essentially what had happened was 12, I was 12 years old in August, going back to school shopping with my parents. We were leaving the mall as we were leaving um, a woman, very, very visibly pregnant, about 10 months pregnant, um, was pushed to the ground by two white um, security officers of the mall and was harassed. And my father immediately ran back, you know, to help this woman out. And at the time, they didn't know that my father was the editor of the only black newspaper in Columbus, Ohio. And, you know, he had some words with them. They threw racial epithets and there were a bunch of micro and macro aggressions thrown his way. He didn't know this woman, but clearly saw the humanity in her, saw what they were doing and was like, no. And that's what I understood the definition of social justice. And that changed everything that I did, every volunteer experience that I had. It helped to determine that, you know, that I, I went to Oberlin College, um, which has a history of social justice and especially for black folks. Um, I majored in African-American studies. I mean, it really changed the trajectory of my life. And I think not until now, now I'm in my forties and it really wasn't until I began interviewing for jobs this summer that I realized just the influence that that had on my life, that experience and really not knowing it. Um, and so I've, you know, I've been, I've been out, I've been, I graduated college back in the nineties. And so I've been working for about 20 something years. Everything that I've done has been in education. Some of it has been for-profit education, like running educational centers, working from McGraw Hill, uh, running this uh, division focused on uh, test prep and supporting uh, states across the country with just creating tools and resources to help their students on high stakes exams. And then I've spent um, all of my career since 2009 in nonprofit. And, um, you know, for me, I think the altruistic part of what I do and who I am has to speak towards my profession. Like the two have to be aligned. It's not enough for me to have a job that may, you know, help me financially, but ultimately I'm not passionate about and I don't love. And so part of the reason I left uh, the for-profit world and went into nonprofit was to ultimately do that. Like I had learned so much about leading and managing teams, about inspiring and motivating people um, and learned that stuff at a really early age. I was 22 managing people who were double my age and had master's degrees behind their name, which I do not. Um, but I worked really hard and, you know, I believe a lot in altruism. I believe in um, helping people who look like me uh, because that's what so many people did for me before me. And so I believe in paying that forward. Um, and then in, in early 2020, in January of last year, I was um, away on a, on a trip with my husband uh, in Bali. And um, on that trip, you know, learning a lot about Hinduism and seeing these incredible people and um, Southeast Asia and recognizing how much they gave reverence, they paid reverence and gave homage and gratitude towards just everyday living, towards animals and people and food and nature. And you know what, honestly, Casey, there was like something about that that was so inspiring. And, you know, I always say that like, we're all put on this earth for a reason. And like, it's our job through our lifetime to find our God-given talent and to really allow that to flourish and be beautiful and, be, and ultimately be successful in life. And I thought about it and, you know, being a CEO of a, of a nonprofit is something I've wanted to do for a long time. I spent the last several years being the executive director of a region of a national nonprofit 
and also managing other executive directors and national nonprofits. And so I know, I understand this work, um, but I think I was really ready to be at the helm of an organization making decisions um, to impact kids and young people who look like me. And um, so I, you know, I, I put it out there in the universe. I said it and I realized I could not snatch it back. Um, and that was like February. And then by March, the pandemic happened. And I was like, ooh, hold up, wait a minute. Maybe I'm not ready to do that right now. Like maybe I just need to, you know, focus on the organization I'm currently at, which, is, uh, was, which was a college access organization called iMentor. Um, and just really making sure that we provide everything we can for our students, especially, you know, during these times. And, you know, the more that um, life just happened, you know, we the more that we would see visions on television of people who look like us, from Breonna Taylor to Ahmaud Arbery, um, all things that I think in the Black community throughout this country we have known, we have lived, and we have experienced. But I think the fact that everybody was still, folks were not commuting into work, everybody was home and glued to their televisions and to their phones, really changed the, I think, the conversation of, around these, the challenges around systemic racism in this country. And then I was like, yep, yeah, no, actually, I do need to apply for a job. I am needed. Like this, I needed to see this be elevated in the way that it has racial unrest and just all of the protesting to recognize all I know you, this is the time that you need to fully fulfill what you were put on this earth to do. And so I began interviewing during the pandemic, which was crazy. And I feel like there's a whole book or a podcast for, just for that, for people who have experienced that. And I came back to Reading Partners. So this is a coming home for me. I was here from 2013 to 2016, overseeing growth in all of the regions. Left, partly because at the time, um, DEI work, while it was something that I think we were trying to understand as an organization, we weren't prioritizing it back then in the way that I had hoped. Um, and then there were just a lot of other things going on in my personal life. So I left to go to iMentor. And then when I heard that the organization was looking for a CEO and just that, you know, the statements that they put on the website were not performative and that they really were about that life and about making the change um, and about walking the walk and talking the talk. I was like, oh, okay, I think I'm ready. Um, I think this could be the place for me. And so that is me. And then I would also say a lot of my professional career has followed the lives of my kids. I have three black sons, um, one who's 19 and in college, one who's 13 um, in eighth grade, and then one who's seven in first grade. And as my children have struggled with literacy, my middle son, or as my older son was kind of deciding what he wanted to do with his life. And if it wasn't gonna be the MBA, what was his profession and where he was gonna to go to school and just navigating the college access um, process with him. Um, I, I can look to all of the nonprofit organizations I've worked at and thinking about that time in my life and connecting it back to parenthood and specifically being a mother. And, you know, I ultimately want to do one, what I, my God, give, you know, really live into my God given talent, but two, also just be an extraordinary role model for my children, for, and especially for three black young men and helping them understand what is possible, especially of women in this country, and that they have a role model like me to be able to imagine and dream and, you know, and do what they believe they should to make this world a better place for all. Mm -hmm. And you pretty much touched on um, my next question was one of your first acts as CEO of Reading Partners was this um, a conversation about systemic racism with Jeffrey Blunt. Um, so can you talk about maybe what you learned from that conversation and as a whole, like you even touched on it, like I said, like how um, 
the racial reckoning that happened last summer, how all that kind of influenced how you kind of set, you know, your vision or your agenda for your time as CEO? I think first and foremost, Casey, the work that we do at Reading Partners, it's it we're not doing it because we love reading. I'm not doing it because in addition to um, African-American studies, I majored in English and I had to read a lot. I'm not doing it simply because I love reading with my kids. While many of those things are true, the systemic racism that is pervasive in this country is one of the really core challenges that are part of the reason why early literacy, particularly for black and brown kids, is even a thing that we're trying to mitigate and focus on. Right now, 79% of economically disadvantaged children in this country um, th that are in fourth grade are not reading at grade level. So unfortunately, organizations like ours need to exist. And it's, it's responsible, it's a responsible thing for us to do to center education equity in the discussion around literacy. So we cannot divorce the two. It's not enough to say, we love reading and we wanna make sure every other child in this country gets to read. All true, but what is also true is that there have been a number of challenges that have, that have, that have existed in this country far before you and I were born or our families, were, you know, for our, the generation before us were born that have caused us to be in, in the situation that we are now in in this country and really trying to focus on public education and creating a level of equity so that kids who need it most absolutely get all of the resources that they need. And so I, you know, I think a lot from that lens of education equity and I think about what is my responsibility as a CEO to envision a world where uh, reading partners does become a model of this change and this shift? But what is the responsibility of me and other C-level leaders in my organization, other staff, other people in my organization who directly manage people? What is our role in all of this? How do we think about our own leadership and ensuring that we have um, an unwavering commitment to race, equity, diversity, and inclusion work. And what does that look like? Less the, again, the statement that everybody was putting up around, you know, on or before Juneteenth and the blackout day and, you know, a couple days before that where every, every company, every so many people and organizations had their statement. How do we live into that? And how, and like, how are we holding ourselves accountable? And then I think secondly, I think well, as we do that simultaneously, then we have to think about what are the ways that we are ensuring that we are not causing um, any undue harm to our students? And everything from ensuring that as tutors uh, sign up to volunteer with us, that they're not doing so simply because they think they are saving somebody. They don't need to love our kids because there's an absence of love, right? We want them to partner with us. And if we, and if we as an organization, which Reading Partners DC is doing really well by way of you know, your earlier introduction, if we are doing this work with our community, not to it and not for it, I, I feel like that also helps to mitigate that dominant culture, white supremacist culture, attitude that so many, unfortunately, that, that so much permeates this, this country, whether in the nonprofit industry, for-profit industry, or just generally speaking, um, that I believe we have to do something about. And so how do we train our tutors to be culturally attuned? What is our responsibility to support them? Um, and given that we've had to shift as an organization from a brick and mortar program that was operating in schools, you know, similar to almost like a, think of a library, we had a reading center where tutors and students would come and the tutors would provide one-on-one -on -one instruction. Now all of that is online or the majority of it is online. There are a couple of our regions where we're still doing things in person. 
But now that so much of that is online, our tutors now have a lens into our, into our families' homes. And what does that mean, right? And, and how do we ensure that they're responsible? And then how do we ensure that we're doing all that we can through family engagement, that our children are not sent to school as empty vessels. They are sent to school, they're loved, they're nurtured, and their parents want just as much for them as you know, any white parent wants for their own children. And so what are we doing to really center that? What are we doing to engage our families? Again, what are we doing to do the work with them? And so that's what you know, a lot of our race, equity, diversity, and inclusion strategies focus on within our organization and even you know, externally. Yeah, maybe I'll stop there. Did I answer your question or? Yeah, definitely. And you also touched on what I wanted to ask next as far as the possibility or probability of COVID slides. This idea that, you know, students are probably going to be a couple months up to a year behind in reading, but especially in math. So in addition to just transferring online, how has Reading Partners kind of worked to address that possibility of students being behind because of this transition to virtual school? Yes. So I think in addition to, you know, digitizing our curriculum or putting it online, we also reach out to our families through a texting feature to just provide additional resources for families, um, particularly um, families whose children are struggling with reading, just things that they could also be doing at home. We also provide a digital library. So, you know, in these times, you know, people aren't running out to bookstores and running out to the library to, um, to, to borrow books. So how can we, how can we bring a library into their home. So those are some of the things that we're thinking a lot about. Uh, but in addition to that, I would say, you know, the COVID slide is real, but what, you know, something that an educator said to me a couple weeks ago that just has absolutely helped me to kind of reframe how I'm thinking about all of this, Casey, is that um, our children are exactly where they should be. And what I mean, and when she first said it, I was like, ooh, ouch, I don't think I like that. But what I understood it to be is that we are in the middle of a global pandemic. We're in the midst of a global pandemic where millions of people have lost their lives worldwide. And in this country, it's been disproportionately black and brown families. And therefore one would think if 79% of the uh, fourth graders are struggling with reading and in our program, 90% of the families, the students that we serve are black and brown, then disproportionately the trauma that they are experiencing is probably hard to put into words. And I would, you know, I'd imagine most adults in this country, regardless of their level of privilege, are facing some type of trauma, you know, based on or just are not all the way okay. Um, and so, imagine what that looks like now for kids. And so, one of the one of our responses have been, how are we thinking about our digital curriculum and with an emphasis on social and emotional learning? And then, even when we get back to this. Um, new normal state post the pandemic, when we're able to safely be back in schools with our students and with our tutors, how are we then also thinking about the importance of connection, the importance of social and emotional learning, and how we celebrate all that our children have learned in this last year, right? I mean, they are resilient, they are strong, they have continued to learn something despite the fact that so much around them has been going on. And that I think in itself is just extraordinary. And so how do we harness their potential? How do we harness their greatness and bring that into the reading centers, bring that into how we build connections with them, with our staff and AmeriCorps members, with tutors, 
um, how we continue to build their confidence and help them know that anything is possible. And I think the social and emotional, uh, the social and emotional work and the connection has to come before the academics because that will come. But one is not going to be prepared to learn if you're not, you know, pouring into them how great they are, how amazing they are, how, you know, just how what they've experienced this last year makes them that much better as a human. Um, and using that and, and, and letting them know that, pe that other people outside of their family also care about them and care about their future and their success. So I think it's twofold. And as an organization, we are currently looking at how do we do that well? How do we partner with other nonprofit organizations? How do we partner with our stakeholders in schools and districts to understand how are they prioritizing social and emotional learning and that connection? Um, and are they prioritizing that above the academic needs? And what role can we play? Because again, we are not the panacea. We, you know, we wanna provide support, but it's not all about us. We are a support to what the schools are already doing. And how can we demonstrate that just in our communication with the schools um, and our ability to listen and just hear from them about what is working and what isn't. And then one thing I was really interested in getting your thoughts on is the idea of like, how can community members outside of what you say, like stakeholders in schools or who do this work, um, how can they get involved to be, you know, similarly invested in the success of these young kids? I know for me, like being in college, I'm trying to worry about my own education, but then still, yes. you know, trying to, um, you know, even get back involved with uh, reading partners volunteering. So that's one yep. way, but how can people who may not necessarily even have like a kid or an educator in their lives still be involved in creating these, this ecosystem that supports their success? I love that question. And I think if we're doing our work right and well, and I, I didn't start at the beginning to say a little bit about what we do. I'm imagining um, some of your listeners know, but for those that don't, we're an early literacy nonprofit and we mobilize community volunteers to provide thousands of students in under-resourced elementary schools um, with proven one-on-one -on -one literacy support. And so, uh, so that we can help them read at grade level. And so what we need, we need, we always are looking for volunteers. And so if, you know, if, if any of your listeners have an hour or two hours a week and are interested in volunteering, and it may not be possible this school year, but I know it definitely will be next school year, reach out to us. Um, our website is readingpartners.org. Um, also, we, we're constantly looking for people to support us through book drives. And so if they want to volunteer, um, volunteer to donate books, we really try to place an emphasis on books um, that, that have characters that look like our students, but also that are written by and, and designed or illustrated by authors that resemble our students, either black and or brown. And so that's really important to us. So I think um, donating books, uh, volunteering to become a tutor, and then if anyone wants to, donating, donating money. Uh, so donating time, donating money, donating books. Um, and they can find out more about all of those things on our website. And then one of my last questions is what is your um, like big picture vision for reading partners within the next couple of years? That's a great question. You know, right now we're in 12 regions across the country, 12 metropolitan regions um, uh, encompassed um, in like nine different states. And while I want us to continue to grow, I don't think it's going to be by us going to open up a similar shop to the one you know in DC in new cities and states. However, we're gonna use our digital platform, Reading Partners Connects, to be able to connect with families and communities that are unlike the 12, that are not the 12 that we're currently in. And so part of our vision is how can we tap into new communities to support families? And given the challenges that COVID will bring academically, social and emotionally for children, 
organizations like ours are needed now more than ever before. So I think that's a big piece. Um, in addition to that, something else that's really important um, is how we continue to engage with our families. Again, if we really wanna live into this notion of us doing work with our communities, not to them and not for them, we must absolutely prioritize families as a stakeholder. And so learning from our families, understanding what they love about our program and what they wanna change is really critical. You know, I'd be so happy if in five years we're supporting you know, more than 50,000 families across this country and that we double the amount of impact that we're having specifically with students. So um, that's a little bit of the vision and continuing to kind of model or continuing to move you know, through the trajectory so that we can once model what it means to be a nonprofit organization focused on educational equity and centering that in all that we do. That's all for this episode. You can find us on social media at better to speak underscore or on our website, bettertospeak.org. If you want to support the podcast and Better to Speak, you can find the link to donate in the description of whatever podcasting platform you're listening on right now. Be sure to tune in to future episodes where we'll dive into various sociopolitical topics with the goal of transforming silence into language and action. As always, I'm your host, Casey Felton. Thank you for listening.